Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Happy Tuesday, everybody. How y'all doing? <laughs> How's your week going? Uh, doing a little check-in as always. How's the self-care? Pleasure? Rest? What form of self-care have you done today? What act have you engaged in that is rooted in nothing more than joy and pleasure? And how have you rested today? Still time to do that. Still time to plan ways to do those three tomorrow as well. Always reminding you guys why, because that's the cornerstone of mental health. It's not how productive you are. It's not getting that home workout in. It's not making the world's best dinner. It's not necessarily maybe getting an A plus on that exam. It's mental health is rooted in your relationship to your emotions, your relationship to those around you, your relationship to... Um, your perspective on the world, right? So it's self, it's other, it's world, it's your identity. And all of that is circulated around, am I living a meaningful life? And so interesting, it depends on where you go. And there's a lot of crap self-help out there. I, if I could remove, uh, there's so many bad self-help books. There's a lot of bad pop psychology. Unfortunately, my field is one of those where it's not well-regulated and there's a lot of offshoots of different identities. And here's the thing, I'm a big fan of alternative methods of healing. I'm a big fan and support alternative forms of knowledge making and education. So I don't believe that everyone has to go the traditional route in order to be seen as an expert or having something worthwhile to contribute. However, I do think that's important that people are getting some form of education, that people have gotten some form of supervision, that people are getting some form of clinical practice, and that people are also doing the research. And then finally, that they're doing work on themselves. And a lot of the dating coaches, life coaches, uh, sex educators, people in my field, they're not all necessarily hitting all of those points. And there's also a lot of them that are, and I see them as friends and colleagues, and I'm a fan of their work, and and I think that they're phenomenal. And there's areas that they excel in that I don't. And so again, it's not necessarily about everyone has to be um, you know a licensed therapist, but there's a lot of crap out there is my bigger point, right? So the only way we can really sift through that is sure, you can do the research and look at who's the person writing this or, or putting this out there, and also just sit with, does it speak to who I want to be? Does it speak to helping create the world in which I want to live in and be a part of? And also, how does it feel? And sometimes you'll, you'll, you'll read something or hear something. And I'll say, I understand where they're coming from, but that doesn't feel true for me or that doesn't feel good to me or that doesn't feel safe to me. I want you to honor that. And you might also say, wow, that doesn't sound like it's pushing us towards the kind of world I want to be a part of. There's a lot of work out there. And my biggest gripe tends to be the stuff that's hyper sexist, where it talks as though everyone's straight and as though everyone's a man or a woman. And it really keeps us in these... Um, 
problematic ways of being, but especially within relationships and sex. And often it really glorifies and glamorizes submission. And um, that's not okay. And it's why I really have an issue with traditionalism. I don't think it has a place in mental health. I don't, especially not within sex and dating and relationships or marriage because traditionalism is rooted in patriarchy and patriarchy is centering the male, cis, white, hetero experience. And even for people that are cis, white, male, and hetero, that is not anything against people with that identity. It's it's still the normativity and the expectations that come from that worldview and that works against them themselves. And essentially what it really is rooted in is it's very misogynist and sexist, and it really trains women to glorify and to romanticize submission and powerlessness where, you know, they're backed away from being able to express themselves sexually because then you're not wife or girlfriend material. They aren't allowed to assert themselves um, even maybe financially or in terms of decision-making. You know, they have to wait to be asked out. They have to be picked up. They have to have the car door open for them. They have someone else paying the bill. Um, and again, some people might romanticize, any, any of that that I just walked you through that you're like, oh, sounds good to me, that's internalization. You've internalized that that should be the way you've seen it modeled for you on television and family members, and you've come to get familiar and comfortable with that. Familiarity and comfort, please don't translate that into the best way for me or the healthiest. It's just most familiar. And what happens is there's the dark side to that, which you can't remove from the positive. When you let someone completely take control and power and lead, they then take control and power and they try to lead. And so those behaviors show up in a really subjugated, problematic way that assumes submission by someone who's female identified. So my big point in all this is just to say, be very thoughtful about the material that you're digesting. You know, I try to create a show and anytime I'm interviewed on a podcast, in my books, when I lecture, it's always rooted in liberation and authenticity. And that's what mental health is about, is letting people really live the lives based on who they are and not have them limited based on their race, their gender, their body shape or size, what they're turned on by sexually, just people just being themselves. Because as you'll learn, and we talk about all the time is these categories, whatever label you might pick, um, someone being black, someone being straight, someone being gym bodied, you can't exclude all their other identities and positions in the world as though those don't matter, right? So to talk to someone who's female identified and just talk to them as a female, you're ignoring maybe whether or not they're gay or straight. And if they're gay, that'd be homophobic to not include that in. And so um, just be thoughtful about the stuff that's swirling around there. Because again, a lot of my clinical work is very much rooted in helping people unlearn and live and have sex outside of those lines. Hence my first book being called Sex Outside the Lines, because that's where health is. It's outside the lines of these norms and traditionalism. Anywho, Tuesday, Tuesday, y'all. We have got a great show planned for you. I'm super excited about the things we're going to be kind of talking about tonight. Question of the night. As always, it's up on our Loveline IG page in the stories weighing on that. And then we'll be doing some DMs. You guys have been sending me some really good ones. So thank thank you. But you got any questions, slide in those DMs. It can be about anything career, family, health, everything. You know, psychology runs the gamut. But later in the show, we're gonna be talking about church trauma. Yep, working with a lot of people that come from a Christian background where that church mentality, not that it's always bad and wrong, but it's really impacted them in a negative way. Also, we're gonna talk about reasons why people don't reach out don't reach out when they're depressed, how we can show up better for the depressed people in our lives, including ourselves. Listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. Right now, children and their families all over Southern California are going to bed hungry. Channel Q and Radio.com have an easy way that you can help feed local students and their families. Text the word NEED to 76278 to give a buck. And also put food in the mouth of a hungry child and their loved ones. Just $1, it's going to make a big difference. Learn more about Feed Our Families on our socials and at WeAreChannelQ.com.
All right, we're back and we're going to talk about something really important. And this is going to be rooted in depression, uh, a more depressive style, personality style, characterological style. And remember, all mental health issues are things that we're all going to encounter in our lives. Uh, I try, you know, I, I, that's why I use the word issues, not disorders, because often there's nothing disordered about the feelings we have. They're very much congruent and aligned with maybe what's going on or who we are. And to call it a disorder is inherently to make bad what is a natural experience like anxiety, depression, hyperactivity. These are common things, especially right now in COVID. And so I don't want to call it a disorder and, and make everyone think, oh no, something's bad, something's wrong, something's broken, I have to fix something. Because mental health work is often learning how to live with the mental struggles, management, because not everything can be removed or should be. And so it's always about looking at the severity, right? So mental health that is letting us kind of lead the lives we want to, those are normal occurrences. So that's there. But then there's also people that tend to just have a chronic ongoing, maybe characterological style around something such as the depressive personality style. That's someone who just always has a depressiveness. It's not a disorder. It's a personality style. They just tend to skew more negative, more of the glass half empty. Um, it's not necessarily causing issues in their life. It's just a different style. Just like there's some people that are more positive and just like we don't immediately try to say, Oh man, you gotta be less positive and happy. We shouldn't say that to someone who tends to have more of a depressive personality style. Oh, you need to be happier or smilier. There's no, there's no right way of being in that form. Now then there's people at the farthest end of the depressive continuum, which are people that have ongoing depression to a point of it being debilitating, where they're not able to live their lives and engage in the world. And so we just have to know that we're all in different places on that spectrum. And the biggest part in all of this is that people just want to feel seen and heard. And that's why you know the work is about destigmatizing mental health and letting people have space to talk about it. Uh, why? Well, we want people to feel as though they can reach out to others because something that amplifies mental health is isolation. When we feel like we have others we can turn to, it makes it feel workable. It makes it feel manageable. It, it also is something that we can kind of use to work through. We also want people to get familiar asking. It's very hard for many people to say, how's your mental health? And instead they'll say things like, how are you? And how are you is too familiar. And so we kind of disregard that as a true request or question, right? And so why do people not talk about their mental health? Well, the first one is because it's stigmatized in our culture. Most people panic. Someone says I'm depressed or sad or lonely or scared. Most people panic. We have to fix this. What can we do? And that's overwhelming to the person struggling because often they just need someone to be in it with them. Same thing with grief and loss. It's not how do I make them feel better? How can I be present in that with them? Because that's all they want is presence. So it's about us getting familiar asking, us getting familiar having people come to us with it, and us getting familiar going to others. So some of the reasons why people don't bring forth their mental health struggles is, again, because they don't want to scare people. They don't want people to try to fix it. And they don't want to be made to feel like they're not competent. And that's why I'm trying to talk more about my my own moods and my own emotional struggles as a healthy, functional human being. Uh, it's important that you know you all see that me, even someone who works in the field, someone who's published, someone who has a full clinical practice, someone who's thriving in the world, that I also get anxious. I also have panic disorders. Um, I have anxiety disorders. I have panic attacks. That's something that I've gotten familiar with. It's part of my life. And for me, it's management. Um, and also some depression. There's a lot of depression and isolation going on for a lot of people. I'm absolutely experiencing it. I'm self-isolating on my own and I'm making use of all the tools I talk to y'all about, but that doesn't mean that I'm not lonely and that I'm not depressed and that I'm not doing my best. I'm, I'm probably giving my about 70%. 
It's all I got right now. The world's getting about 70% and I'm not pushing myself to give a hundred right now. A hundred's not a right expectation. And it would actually be mentally unhealthy for me to set that as my goal. I'm not trying to, I'm not about optimization. I'm not about raising the bar to the highest. I'm about being where we are, challenging ourselves, growing, but I'm about just letting ourselves be where we are, where we are. It's not about perfection. It's not about, you know, it's, we live in a culture that's obsessed with constant state of self-improvement. It's okay to be like, I'm taking the year off, not improving anything this year. I've worked really hard last year. I'm just kind of doing maintenance or getting through there. But let's talk about the reasons why people generally don't want to talk about their mental health other than just stigma. Some people just don't think it's going to do anything. And that's often because the people in their lives don't know how to just sit with it, right? And again, when someone approaches you with a mental health struggle, all you need to do is listen, just be present. You don't need to have resources. You don't need to have solutions. That actually is the opposite of being present. Some people also don't want others to feel as though they're bringing them down. And that's part of our toxic positivity in our culture where we think that like everything has to feel good. It's okay for a friend to say, listen, can we hang out? And it's not going to be a positive, fun, joyous, laughing kind of time. It's going to be dark and heavy. Are you available and open to that? And then we sit in that. We sit with that. That's okay. Like I know those are the moments where I feel closest to someone is when they're really bearing themselves to that level of vulnerability. Um, I think that that's stunning. Also because people are afraid that people sometimes won't disclose their mental health or their depression because they don't want to be seen as just lazy or sad. And again, we've talked about this where if, if, if I had a leg injury and I was not walking the way you're used to seeing me walk or I had you know a, a cut or a bruise, we, we will accommodate that. But when someone says I'm depressed or I'm anxious, our, our, our thought, even though we'll say we, we value mental health, our thought will be, oh, well, you know, you have to do it anyway or toughen up or don't be lazy. And it's like we just really still struggle culturally to accommodate mental illness. It's hard for a lot of us to say, all right, have the week. Take the week to yourself. For a husband or wife to say to their partner, all right, I've got this today. I've got this this week. I'll cover this this weekend. Or to have a friend say that. But if you were like in a cast or utilizing crutches or, you know, something like that, if we can see it, then we're all in. And that's our cultural obsession with materialism. If I can't see it or touch it or weigh it or quantify it, it's hard for me to believe it's real. You might be lying or dramatizing. And that's part of the problem is mental health can't be seen. It's an invisible illness. Um, even psychiatrists, when they prescribe medication, they go off of what you tell them. Whatever symptoms you tell them, they're going through a checklist in their mind. They're like, let's try this. This has been shown to work. There's no blood test. There's no brain scan. And so it's really hard. People want materialism. We want to concretize to believe. And mental health doesn't work that way. So what I want you to take away from this, sex, this uh, segment is... Am I believing myself or others when they're expressing a mental health struggle? When I myself, this is you speaking with yourself, when I say, I'm feeling anxious today or I'm feeling depressed, do I brush it off? Do I say toughen up? Or do I say, what does it need? Maybe I need to sit for a minute. Maybe I need to find some joy. Maybe I need to up self-care. And do you offer that to friends, family members, colleagues, and employees? Because that's what the work is, right? That's how we heal that. All right, coming up next, we're going to be talking about church trauma. I don't often talk a lot about religion and the intersections of it with mental health because it's something that I'm personally not that interested in. It's something I personally haven't experienced, doesn't come into my office a lot. And so it's just not in the scope of what I find interesting. Like I do the work around what stimulates me, but I think it's a really valuable topic. And so I'm going to try to fold it in more because a lot of people do have that as a thread in their life. Uh, listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back. Question of the night. As always, it's up on our Loveline IG page. So 
weighing on that and uh, the DMs are always open. And I also just want to give a little plug. I'm listening live. It's my live stream show. It's awesome stuff. I like it. It's a good, it's a good gig. Uh, that's every Thursday and that you will watch streaming live on all the radio.com handles. So that is, I always have to go through to my head, literally like a list, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And the website, radio.com. <laughs> uh, every Thursday night, 5 p.m. Pacific. That's 8 p.m. Eastern. And then you can always go back and rewatch old ones. It's awesome, though. It's celebrities. Really diverse set of celebrities. It's the, uh, I, I like the, the diversity in there. And then also experts. And we talk a lot about COVID because you can't not. But it's a lot of the intersections of music, mental health, and art. It's really good stuff. Lots of tips, interesting conversations. So uh, check that out. And uh, Loveline old episodes podcasted at wearechannelq.com and also radio.com and follow us on IG. I know we're not always the greatest about using the social media page. It's busy times. We got a lot going on, a lot of balls in the air. So I want to talk about spirituality and religion. Uh, church trauma is what some people are talking more about. It's not something I focus on a lot. Um, people that usually want to kind of work through that, I send them to someone who's, it's tough because there are faith-based therapists and some of them have the capacity to work with someone who's coming out of the faith. A lot of faith-based therapists are working with people that do want to do therapy within the context of. And so it's really hard for some people to find a place where they can do the work of healing the trauma and moving away from versus moving towards, which is what a lot of faith-based therapists do is they don't help you heal and leave the church. They help you kind of exist within. Um, I'm sure a lot of people will correct me on having said it like that. So it is, I don't know everything in that area, but, um, you know, look, uh, religious puritanicalism, uh, the way it first shows up is in a lot of the ways we talk about gender and relationships and sexuality. And when I say sexuality, I know my longtime listeners know I don't just mean sexual orientation, the gender you're interested in. I mean your total sexuality. Your sexuality is bigger than the sexual, than the gender choice. It's all the things that turn you on, all the kinks, the differences, the diversities, the creativity. And our culture hates that, but religion especially is difficult for that. And religion often, religion very much, and, and its connection to purity culture, Culture is this idea. Um, it's also rooted in what we call respectability politics, right? That your worth as a human being is rooted in being respectable and being respectable is tied to the norms that we've set up. And purity culture is tied to that. We're saying, look, as soon as you, you know, your purity is the most important thing to maintain your celibacy. And as soon as you have sex, you're then stepping into some other identity and it's only made healthy within marriage. Now, none of that's true. The bulk of people that are having sex aren't doing it within a relationship or even in service of one. And that's okay. Sex can be used for fun, entertainment, intimacy, employment, whatever you want. Just like everything else. Um, but the problem is we have to really start using the word sexual debut because sexuality is an important developmental milestone and everyone should achieve it. And I think there's a lot that can come out of it. And I want people to do more sexual exploration in their youth as well. That's the, that's the most important time. And I was just reading a study. I want to just read you this quote. Um, and it was saying that the experiments with monkeys. Now there is a researcher and I don't want to get too deeply into this. His name was uh, Harry Harlow. And he did a lot of research with monkeys and we looked at attachment and relationality and it was quite abusive on the animals. So I, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a supporter of animal, uh, animal testing. I think it's disgusting. I think it's not valuing life. I think you know, humans asserting their control over animals is no different than the, you know, uh, power we assert over other lesser, more marginalized and exploited individuals or beings. And so I'm grossed out by the whole concept. All, everyone has a right to life in that way. But the experiments were looking at monkeys that were deprived of sex play in their youth. And when the young monkeys did not have any access to sex play with their peers, uh, they weren't able to engage in sexuality as adults, right? Uh, now that's a no brainer, you know, sexuality, relationality, these are skills that are to be learned. And so I want people 
having sex and learning and growing. And that's part of being an adolescent is going through these social developmental milestones and dating and sexuality is an important part of that. And there's a lot of reasons why not everyone has access to that, but we want to talk about sexual debut, that moment when you have sex for the first time and we want to celebrate that and say, that's really great. That was something that was going to happen. And you know, the relationship you're in doesn't necessarily make it more valid or less so. I want people to have positive experiences, but remember the best reason to have sex is because you're feeling like you want to in that moment because it doesn't promise anything. It doesn't promise a boyfriend or girlfriend. It doesn't promise marriage or love, and it's not supposed to. It's a tool. It's a technology. It's a vehicle. It's an experience. None of those things promise anything, right? Going to college doesn't promise anything. Getting married doesn't promise anything. Love doesn't. You know, being someone's parent or child doesn't, right? It's all it's all based on what we do, but remember that religion can implement these threads where people have anxiety and fear and phobia around their bodies and nudity and sexuality and they struggle to hear it and to see it and to talk about it. And so the work for a lot of people that are in religion or coming out of religion and even in spiritualities to do that work because even if we're going to use that pop culture definition of there's a difference between religion and spirituality blah 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 well I see a lot of these yoga spiritual communities very sex phobic it breaks my heart when I'm researching eastern religion and I'm so on board with everything that's being said and then sex comes up and they shame masturbation and they shame porn and they shame sex outside of relationship and they shame sex as a beautiful way for self-soothing or emotional regulation and it just shows me that they haven't done the work. Um, congrats on your yoga teacher certification, but you're not trained in sex or relationships. Congrats on your life coach certification, but you're not trained in sex and relationships. You know, it's, we have to, we have to really look at, are, are they doing the work because it's such a traumatized topic? Um, so, you know, if you're coming out of a historical background that had church as a center point or continues to and has traumatized you, there's a lot of beautiful, beautiful churches that are very non-sexist, non-traditional, um, gay affirming. And sometimes that's the place you have to go to do that healing. Because I know me, I don't have a history and religion in a way that I can really help people work through some of those specifics. Um, a lot of great literature out there. All right, coming up next, we're going to be doing some DMs, listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back. Now it's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. Sliding the DMs is brought to you by our friends at Trojan Condoms because it's a big old sexy world. We want you to explore with confidence. Our DMs come from our Loveline IG page. Got a question, thought, comment? Slide on in there. This one says, hey, Dr. Chris, I love your show and how much it has made me self-reflect to make all my relationships thrive. Awesome, thank you. Mad respect to you. I've been dating my girlfriend for two and a half years. We've had our ups and downs as I'm more avoidant and she's more anxious. Now, again, um, I'm glad that you're aware of those two positions and it's the more difficult, <laughs> that's the more difficult style for someone anxious to be dating someone avoidant because essentially when you both trying to get your needs met, you trigger the other person's coping mechanism and that just generates more anxiety in the person. So we'll talk about that in a second. We still love each other and both go to individual therapists to continue to work on ourselves. Beautiful. A few months ago, I was working at an agency she was connected to as our funder, so we shared similar coworkers. Started to develop feelings for my coworker and the feelings were mutual. I decided to quit the job because I could no longer spend time with this coworker and stay with my girlfriend. Uh, my girlfriend confronted me and I told her nothing had happened. Her friends, my coworkers, told her that I looked shady. I still think about that coworker every day even though we cut off all communication. Am I just deep in fantasy or are these feelings real? By the way, I'm in a monogamous relationship, thank you. So I love this question. So those that aren't familiar, um, someone being an avoidant means that 
basically that. Imagine someone being in these different situations where intimacy or closeness or presence is required via text, a phone call, a date, sexuality. This person is someone who's going to want a lower level of closeness, maybe touch, maybe sexuality, maybe presence. Someone who's avoidant is going to always be leaning out a little bit. Closeness and intimacy make them a little anxious. And sometimes, sadly, those people get labeled as shady or uninterested or, you know, an F-boy. And it's not. It's, you know, the question has to sometimes be, is even though what even though a behavior might feel dot 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 is that what the person's intention is because some people are avoidant uh closeness and commitment or intimacy or all that stuff can make them anxious and that's a healthy coping mechanism that now isn't needed anymore but that was something that was built in throughout their life at some point now the anxious person is the opposite that's the person who's always hyper focused on the partner and the relationship they're always hyper focused and their mood is really dependent upon the quality of their relationship and how close they feel like their partner is to them and they're kind of an empty well that's always needing filling so imagine when that anxious person who needs a lot of presence and connection and reinsurance and attention imagine when they're leaning in and trying to grab onto the avoidant who then is leaning out and leans further out. And the further the avoidant leans out because the anxious person overwhelms them, the more anxious the anxious person gets and they lean in and want more and get hungrier, thereby making the avoidant person even more overwhelmed and leaning out. And so it's a really conflictual, difficult style. It's it's considered not compatible. But couples sometimes are like, yeah, we're willing to hang in there and do the work. That's great. It's not totally resolvable. And for some of those couples, the entire relationship is management. It's just not ideal. It's not ideal at all. Um, anxious people do really well with other anxious people. They're just one big blob. <laughs> you know, uh, Avoided people would best be dealt with, with someone else who's avoidant, where that amount of space and distance feels good to both. They don't need to see each other all the time. They don't need as much connection. It's a beautiful thing. Anywho, I applaud your willingness to prioritize your partner and your relationship and to cut off ties and leave. I think that's, wow, what a beautiful act of commitment. I wish that that was meaningful to your partner, but instead they're somehow framing something as shady, which is heartbreaking to me, that you as an avoidant are doing your work and you're leaning in and you're trying to look out for your relationship with your partner and somehow you're being called shady. Her friends and the coworkers said that you look shady. I'm unclear as to what that would mean and I'm sad you're with a partner who hasn't that doesn't trust you, you know, when you're saying to them nothing happened. So you have deeper relational work to do. If you're in a relationship where if you're confronted about something, you say nothing happened, if they can't believe you, then they have work and you have work to do because there's no trust there. Because I want people to be in relationships where you're like, no, nothing happened. They're like, I believe you. So I would also uh, say to a girlfriend that you need, her friends need to stay out of this. I'm personally not interested in her friend's opinions. And I'd love for you to say that. Listen, your friend's opinions of me and my behavior, I'm not interested in. And so please don't bring that to me or bring that up. That's not relevant. I'm telling you as your partner that nothing happened and I need you to believe that. And if you don't, then we have work to do. And I need to work on being more worthy of trust or you need to work on trusting. And so I want you to kind of focus more on that. That's the issue. But as far as your last question, am I just deep in fantasy or are these feelings real? It's probably both, but that doesn't mean you do anything with it. Like we're often going to move through our lives where we're maybe turned on by or interested in other people and we don't act on it because of the relationship we're in. But the presence of interest in other things doesn't necessarily mean that anything needs to be done. So just recognize it as it's real and I'm attracted to them, but I'm also with someone right now that I want to be with. And so I just don't act on that, you know? Sliding the DMs is brought to you by our friends at Trojan Condoms because it's a big old sex world and we want you to explore with confidence. All right, coming up next, I'm talking about some science related to masks in COVID. Why? Because y'all need to wear them. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com.
All right, we're back. Question of the night. It's up on our Loveline IG page and uh, DMs always open. So slide on into those. But right now we're going to talk about masks. Listen, y'all, I was just looking at some horrible, horrible stats here in the US. Excuse me, that we have not flattened the curve. And although some states are quote unquote doing a little better, please don't be fooled. Please don't be fooled by the photos of your friends hanging out you know, at parties or whatever it is, it is not okay to do that. It's not safe. And we need to be wearing our masks. That's something that both the Center for Disease Control and the World Health Organization is recommended. So please listen to them. I, I don't care what the president or your governor or mayor or your best friend or mom or dad is saying or your teacher. Uh, Center for Disease Control, the World Health Organization, as well as everyone else who's intelligent, is saying to wear your mask. So please wear it. Anyone questioning that or making it about their politics, that it's ridiculous. It's about care and compassion for ourselves and other people, and we're trying to deal with a pandemic. So you know, lean in, get into it. Um, but a lot of people don't really understand why the health experts are saying that you know all the evidence is clear that masks can help prevent the spread of COVID-19. And the more people wearing them, the better. And in fact, that's the only way that that's gonna happen until the vaccine comes out and until we then step into the whole argument about to vaccinate or not to vaccinate um, and believe that that's gonna be a huge issue. Now, uh, I'm looking at an article from UC San Francisco, an epidemiologist, an MD there, and an infection disease specialist. And they're talking about how the CDC has changed its guidance on wearing masks. Now, the original recommendation, like I said, from the World Health Organization, CDC was to wear them. We got to go with that. Now, people are saying, well, why did that change? Um, now, this is a quote. And he said, so of course, uh, you're preaching that the Juice isn't really worth a squeeze to have the whole population wear masks in the beginning, but that was really a reflection of not having enough testing anyway. We were getting a false sense of security, right? So where are we now? The follow-up quote is, uh, although we were worried about supply, we now know, and we should have been saying back then, that people should wear masks. And I remember seeing people early on wearing them, and I thought, how strange, because everyone's saying, you don't have to worry about that. Like, that's overkill. Just wash your hands. And now I'm thinking, oh my God, they were onto something. So understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that they've changed that they're saying don't wear masks. I'm saying that originally they weren't saying we needed to. They're now saying we do need to. And they're looking back and saying we should have been saying that. So it's it's been like an evolution. Um, and I, I think like the factor that's throwing people off in all this is this whole uh, symptomatic and, and asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic. And we're not looking at the fact that a lot of the positive people don't have any symptoms. And so when we're just trying to assess things based on these questions of, have you had any uh, symptoms? Do you have a fever? That's not, that's not good enough. And that's why we need to be wearing them anyway. Cause there's some people that are what they're calling pre-symptomatic, right? And we, and we know from the studies uh, that the viral load, right? The, the load of the virus, that it peaks in the days before symptoms appear. So sit with that for a second. So when we're looking for symptoms, as the sign that this person might be positive or needs to get tested or needs to isolate further. It's the load of the virus prior to the symptoms beginning that is most concerning. And that's that gray area where we don't know. And we know that just talking, speaking, having a conversation, that's enough to expel virus carrying droplets. And that's why when I'm seeing people not wearing their mask at a restaurant, I'm looking at them how close they are at the table. And I'm thinking that that is a risk right there. I'm even looking at people in parks together that aren't that like, it's all about proximity. Um, you know, we, we can't tell who's infected and I'm looking at the, the articles talking about the length of time that it takes to get results back, which then makes them neutral, useless. If I get tested today and the results don't come back for three days, five days a week, what about all the possible exposures I've had between now and then, unless you were totally quarantining between the time of taking the test and getting it back, which is very difficult. 
but do know that when they're doing studies, um, and I'm, I'm looking at one right now, I'm looking at the research where they use what they call like a high-speed video, and so they can track the expulsion of the droplets. Um, it found that hundreds of droplets, ranging from 20 to 500 micrometers, good luck with that one, they were generated when saying a simple phrase. Simple phrase, quick and easy. But that nearly all these droplets were blocked when the mouth was covered by a damp cloth. Now, my mask is not damp, so that's a new, like, you know, uh, curveball thrown in there. But another study of people who had influenza or a common cold found that wearing a surgical mask significantly reduced the amount of these respiratory viruses emitted in the droplets and the aerosols. So the strongest evidence is still in favor of masks, right? And that's also, that comes from studies in real world situations, which is always important. Like what happens when I'm sitting in front of someone? And so we have to pay attention to that. Also know that, you know, we now have been in this long enough where we can watch what's happening in other countries and other locations, right? And a study was looking at 198 countries and found that those that had governments and leaders and cultural norms that favored the mask wearing, that they definitely had lower death rates. But I, I think the caveat to remember is that the mask wearing is gonna be a huge prevention technique to protect yourselves and others and flatten the curve, but also know that the virus can still be contracted or caught via membranes in your eyes. And that is a risk that the mask isn't going to eliminate. And that's why you're seeing some people wearing the shields over the mask. So just think about that, you know? Um, I'd love for 100% of people to be doing it, but even if we drop down to 80, 75, it's pretty significant, right? As long as everyone's following the rules. But again, we're looking at social media and we're not really seeing that happen. So I don't know, man, I have a lot of anxiety and I'm watching people's mental health deteriorate. So again, I'm just gonna keep giving you all pep talks and arm you with some tools and stats to try to kind of throw around to help get your friends and family members and loved ones on board. It's a scary time, y'all, but we gotta do what we gotta do. All right, coming up next, we're gonna talk about how to center your sexuality. A lot of us have anxiety and the longer we're in a relationship and the more committed we are, the anxiety and fragility can actually spike and we are even more anxious versus more confident and secure. So we'll talk about that. Listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. Right now, children and their families all over Southern California are going to bed hungry. Channel Q and radio.com have an easy way that you can help feed local students and their families. Text the word need to 76278 to give a buck and also put food in the mouth of a hungry child and their loved ones. Just $1. It's going to make a big difference. Learn more about feed our families on our socials and at wearechannelq.com. All right, we're back and uh, time to talk about sex. Centering your sexuality. So what we're gonna talk about really can be applied to a lot of different scenarios and it just goes back to this concept that in relationships, whatever kind we're having with this person, when it's romantic, when it's sex-based, People will, the longer you're with them, the more committed, the more time goes by, the more they bond. People will make bids for your attention. You know, it's okay that people want to be centered, prioritized, felt, cared for, to feel important. And as we're gonna talk about on tomorrow's show, this whole concept of what is our self-esteem, and we're gonna unpack it more on tomorrow's show, but I'll just say now that our self-esteem is an accumulation of what's been reflected back to us about our worth and value. And so when a partner turns to you, turns to us, turns to you, it's an attempt for them to connect, get closer, maintain that. You know, again, we tend to think of relationships in this uh, linear goal-oriented way. And we tend to think that after we achieve these different steps that we're done. 
you know, we're married now, we're committed, we're monogamous, we live together, whatever it is. It's all done. And I remind people that the stages of courtship are a circle. We're constantly supposed to be staying in them. We should always be flirting, always romanticizing, always connecting, always attracting. It doesn't stop. It's like a plant. You don't buy the plant and then you're like, I'm done. No, you have to constantly water it. You have to attend to it. You might need to move its location. The sun's too bright at this time of the day or it needs more sun and I move it. I pay attention to the light. Relationships are a verb. Remember, we relationship. It's not something we have our own. That's capitalism leaking in. We don't own a person or a relationship. It's a verb. We relationship. We're relationshipping with this person. We don't have a relationship. That implies a finality, right? We have to always stay in that process. And so if someone says, oh, I'm in a relationship, I'll say, great, what did you do today? That was part of it. And they think, oh, well, no, it's this abstract thing that I have. And it's like, no, it's something you're engaging or you're not. And if you're not engaging it and you're not participating or, you know, connecting, or as I say it again, relationshiping, then it's just this abstract concept and it's going to feel that way. So when people make a bid for our attention, whether it's for sex or to talk or to touch, I want us to take it seriously. It's not just sex. It's not just, honey, get your hands off me. No, they're trying to connect and make a bit of your attention. And if you start rejecting them, what happens is they'll stop turning to you for affection, for sensuality, for sex. And those needs need to get met and they are legit and they will get met elsewhere. But also you're having that person start to internalize that they're not attractive or they're not worthy or they're not good. And so I want you to be aware of the complexity of that. I want people to be able to confidently turn to their partners to try to get and engage in and utilize sexuality and eroticism. Now, again, as I always say, the caveat is it can only be done in a healthy relationship with someone who's healthy. And so that work has to be done on the front end. And please be in relationships where that exists. So the assumption is that that's there, that work has been done, and that we can honestly be that vulnerable and our partner won't reject the sexual content, right? But I want partners to be able to always approach when interested. I don't want a partner to have to read the body language of the other. I want us to all be adults and take care of ourselves. So I want the partner who has the sexual desire in the moments they have it, to be able to approach their partner, trusting that their partner will create a safe space around which to engage that on some level, right? I don't want people to just make guesses or assumptions. I want us to approach, I want us to sit down. I don't want people to feel alone in their sexuality. And that's what happens. People will come into my office and say, you know, I constantly got rejected and turned away when I tried to have sex with them or when I was just trying to be affectionate, maybe because they assumed or thought that was going to then have to lead to sex. And the person says, so now I just don't really turn to them in those ways. And so now I feel weakened in our relationship where I feel more lonely or alone. Uh, or it's been so long, I don't know how to get back to that, but yet we both miss it. And so remember that, you know, you want to stay close and connected in those ways. You don't want to allow a lot of space or distance. Um, disconnection happens in that. And the longer you go without that, the harder it is sometimes for many people to circle back. And remember when someone turns to you for sex, it's not just to get off. And if that is the reason that's okay as well, that's legit, especially in monogamous relationships. Cause remember you're saying I'll then be available for sex. You can't choose monogamy and then force someone into celibacy by saying you can only have sex with me, but then I'm not even going to be interested in sex. That's abusive, right? That's not sexual health. And so I want you to know it's about connection. It's about fun. It's got a lot of different mechanisms that are implanted in that, but I want you to be available for that. So the work is always about, if not 
penetration, because remember, sex is more than penetration. Sex is a huge umbrella term for a lot of different activities and behaviors. What might you be interested in open to, in doing? Because it can't just be no. It can't just be a hard no. There has to be some level of affection, sensuality, attention, eroticism, something that falls under one of those terms. Because again, this is about both of us. And I want people to examine for themselves, what's going on? Why do I always reject my partner when they want to sit with me, talk to me, touch me, have sex with me? What's that about? Right? And sometimes maybe we put a pause as we do that work, but I want everyone who's single to do that work. What's my relationship to sexuality and intimacy and touch? And then while with a partner, you know, is monogamy for us or at this time, am I, have I done that work? Am I able to be available? Can I use this partner in a safe way to work towards that? Right? So this whole part is just about authenticity in our totality. And if we feel rejected by our partner, it's really hard for us to move through the world at our best, especially though, if certain parts of us feel bad or wrong. It's when our partners turn to us, the work is about realizing here's a moment where their self-esteem is on the line, our relational health is on the line, their vulnerability. In what way do I wanna be present to this moment? Because maybe you and them have traditionally really undermined it or reduced the meaning in that moment. And that could be some issues, that could be some of the causes to why the relationship doesn't necessarily feel its hardiest. But tomorrow we're gonna to talk more about the self-esteem piece. I think it's a really important topic. Essentially, I'm calling it the myth of self-esteem because it really ignores the relational social components of our self-esteem. And it just kind of shrinks it down and makes it just this like individual thing that the person on their own is responsible for when it's far bigger than that, right? It's impacted by all the relationships we're a part of and all the messages we're surrounded by. So be enhancing, you know what I mean, for your partner. That's, that's, that's part of your work. Make people better off for having been with you. Um, all right, coming up next is question of the night. So still some time to weigh in on that. That's on our Loveline IG page and the stories. And then uh, we're gonna be doing some DMs. So stick around for that. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back. Time for a question of the night. Question of the night. It's always up on our Loveline IG page in the stories. Tonight's question was, according to CNN, the number of people giving up their U.S. citizenships this year are more than in 2018 and 2019 combined. Combined. Top three reasons for wanting to leave the country are unhappy with today's current political climate, taxes, and how the coronavirus is handled. I'm, I'm here for that. Look, you have to live within what's reasonable for you based on privilege and finances and career choice. You have to live somewhere, hopefully, where the government and the politics best reflect or align with the world you wanna live in. And so I respect people saying, listen, the US is not that. And for many of us, we're very disappointed. I'm personally disappointed and embarrassed in our country right now. Um, I was never a nationalist. I was always about people. I want everyone to get their resources and needs met. I didn't care if it's our country or another one. I'm looking out for everyone. It's a global consciousness. Um, but it's even harder now. It's very embarrassing. I have friends from other countries that are constantly like, what are you guys doing? Whether it was, um, gun control issues, now the coronavirus, all sorts of things. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. But that's why I'm registered to vote and I, I, I implore you all do so. And we vote Democrat. I know we have some issues with Biden and Kamala, but um, we're gonna be able to, they're gonna do better. So I respect everyone that's leaving's interest in leaving. I thought about it myself. Uh, Canada was looking really good to me. It has its own problems, but there's a lot of beauty up there. But my media career is here and I'm licensed here, so we'll see what happens. But it's it's in the back of my mind. I'm not, there's no reason for me necessarily to have to stay here if it's not working for me, so I, I respect this. So the question of the night is, have you ever seriously considered moving out of the country and why? And again, uh, CNN said the top reasons were unhappy with political climate, taxes, and how coronavirus was handled. 
all really, really life altering and impacting things. So again, question that is, have you ever seriously considered moving out of the country and why? First person said, yes, seems like my mental health would be better somewhere else. I can understand that. I agree. Um, there's other countries that are doing far better with a multitude of things, females in leadership, environmental impact, lower taxes, free education, free healthcare, gun control, lower rates of violence. You know, the U S has the highest rate of imprisonment. I mean, I could go on and on, so I'm not going to go down that route, that road. Someone else said yes. And I'm still considering it waiting until November. To be honest, I get that if Trump were voted back in, um, I would seriously start to consider exiting. Um, although I do hold space to the idea that if, if all of us social justice, social justice activists leave the country, then we're leaving those with less power and access and privilege to just suffer. And we need to stay. It's kind of what happens when people with more liberal politics all leave and go to blue States and they leave, um, you know, other community and, and members of our quote unquote chosen family behind. And we want to be thoughtful about that as well. But I'm with you. Depending what happens in November, I might be making some life changes as well. I, I can't go through another Trump administration. Uh, someone else said, as far as have you ever considered seriously leaving the country and moving out? Someone said, yep. So I can escape my student debt at student debt and have universal health care. Yep. I want them to get rid of student debt. I don't know if I see that happening now. Uh, but yes. Someone else said one word, Trump. I'm out if there's a second term. I know. It scares me. It legit scares me. It scares me for myself and it scares me for others. Our safety, our well-being. I mean, the way that Trump is handling COVID, the way that he's rolled back LGBTQIA rights, his racism, his misogyny. I, I am at a loss for those that are thinking that all of that is acceptable somehow. Question of the night. Have you ever seriously considered moving out of the country? Why? Someone said, oh, definitely. The political and socioeconomical situation are the main reasons. Yep. That would be mine as well. Someone else said, I live in Canada, so I'm staying here for sure. No way I'm headed south to the U.S. I know, right? We're like the armpit. We're the armpit of the continent at this point, right? We're like the smelly crotch. Uh, Canada's like U.S. is the smelly crotch of North America. I know, y'all. We're trying. We're trying. Question tonight, have you ever seriously considered moving out of the country and why? Someone said, yes, I want to meet other people and experience other cultures. See, I love that as well. I think there's, if you have the ability, live in different countries, live in different cities, um, I've learned so much having lived in Philadelphia and New York and now Los Angeles. I've traveled extensively. It's very life enhancing, transformative. Do it. Someone else said, uh, my dad lives in New Zealand, beautiful place. And I feel like their government is superior to the U S I feel like you are correct in many ways as well. Um, see if you're, you're out of a spare room. Maybe you can go get over there. I mean, New Zealand is absolutely stunning. No place is perfect, but, um, right now it looks kind of bleak for us. So I can see where some people are like, look, it's only up from here. It's only up from here again. Have you ever seriously considered moving out of the, the country? Why? That's our question of the night. Someone said, yes, lack of social services and access to affordable healthcare and education are huge for me. I know. Appreciate that. And uh, we'll kind of end on this one. Someone said, I want, I want to work to excel, not work to survive. I know, I appreciate that one. That's what a lot of people are feeling like in our culture and in our economy and with their bills and healthcare that they're just working to survive. They're not thriving. And what's the purpose of our time here on this planet? What's our purpose of life if it's just survival, survival, just getting, just getting it barely done? When's the time for, for vacation, fun, relaxing, leisure? That should be our center point. Work should be what we do secondarily, secondarily to our life centered in meaning and purpose and value and fun and joy.
right? Our current culture can suck the life out of that or reorganize that problematically. So I get it. All right, y'all. Thanks to those that participated. That question of the night is always up on our Love on IG page. So get on into the conversation and join it. Uh, question, I'm sorry, DM coming up next. Listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back. Now time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. Sliding the DMs is brought to you by our friends at Trojan Condoms because it's a big old sexy world. We want you to explore with confidence. Hi, Dr. Chris. Love the show. I listen every day. I need some advice on what to do concerning my mentally ill mom. She's always struggled with depression and addiction due to undealt with childhood trauma, but seems well off for the past few years and was thriving. She got a toxic boyfriend, which left her losing everything, including her home. It got to the point where she has been delusional and under psychosis, and I had to admit her to a hospital. She's been in the psych ward for two weeks, and we, ex- uh, and we suspect she may have early dementia or schizophrenia at 58 years old. She claims she's fine and doesn't need help, yet has episodes frequently and makes things up. She refuses to take medication too. Thankfully, I've had friend and family support, but I can't help but feel under pressure for her mental health and safety once she's released. How can I help my mom realize she needs clinical help and keep her safe and sound? I know this is a heavy question and doesn't have a simple answer, but your input is helpful. Thank you. Yeah, um, there isn't an easy, quick solution. This is a multi-tiered, very complex situation. So I can't just give you this like, you know, one answer that's going to apply and resolve all because when we're talking about human beings, there's a complexity. And um, we're talking about mental health. It's often not about resolving or correcting or fixing. It's about learning how to deal, how to cope, how to manage. I applaud your concern and care. And that's really difficult. You know, it's hard to watch someone you care about struggle with mental illness. And there's a lot of different threads here for your mom. You know, addiction, depression, psychosis, possible um, schizophrenia. That's very overwhelming and scary. So the first thing I want to say is you need to get support. Although it's your mom that's struggling, get into some therapy. That's the first piece because there's going to be a lot more ahead. So get some therapy. I want to make sure that you're doing your self-care, that you're still focusing and living your life, that you're still finding joy and pleasure and that you're thriving because your mom can't become the center point. And so the first piece is therapy. The second piece is starting to figure out what role you want to play in your mom's life. Some people choose to become a caregiver, a caretaker, and maybe they'll move the person into their home and they'll take that responsibility on. For other people, they'll say, I can't, I don't want to, or I can't afford that, or that doesn't fit into the structure of my life and that's okay. And so you have to figure that out. And that might be something you want to do in therapy. I'd also say contact other family members and see if they're willing to be part of the community of care because that might be what's best is your mom having a community of care. There's multiple people that are willing to take on some of the responsibility of helping her get to her appointments keeping an eye on her, giving her structure. Um, but it's, you know, this is what happens. A lot of people don't always want to take their medication due to delusion, due to psychosis, due to not liking the effects, due to feeling better and trusting and hoping that that'll be a long-term thing. So that's going to be an ongoing possible issue is keeping track of your mom's medication and making sure she's taking them. But there's very little we can say that just convinces someone that it's something they should do. And so I just lovingly let you know that that's going to be management. Some people are all on board and other people you have to constantly deal with the ebbs and flows and the ups and downs. It's part of it, you know? So that's why I'm centering back to you focusing on what you're needing, that you're taking care of yourself, that you're in your therapy, because from that, you'll be better able to manage everything else because you're going to have your own life. And while your mom is struggling dealing with her issues, relapse often, I'm sorry, addiction often involves relapse. So maybe your mom at some point might be back on drugs and back off again. 
uh, relapses in the depression. Like that's going to be ongoing. This is her life for the rest of her life is going to be dealing with all this. And I know your life is going to show up. Your life doesn't stop and give you a break because you have to worry about your mother. And so you have to be able to attend to that. And that's why community care is what's best for everyone is not having just one person that's responsible for the caregiving, right? And that's why as many parents as possible is great for a child, as many loved one or caretakers. And same thing with someone who's struggling with mental health issue. They need care and support. So focus on that. Um, that's really what's going to be about. But um, I'm sending empathy and love to you because that that's a lot for someone to sit with, you know. Um, Slime the DMs is brought to you by our friends at Trojan Condoms because it's a big old sex world. We want you to explore with confidence. That's our show. We'll be back tomorrow, 7 p.m. Pacific. 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And uh, you can check out old past episodes on radio.com or we are channel Q. And uh, get in on the question of the night. Also drop some DMs in there and check out my show. I'm listening live. That's live streaming on every every Thursday on all the radio.com platforms at uh, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Always good guests. Um, and as always, y'all, self-care, pleasure, rest. Thanks for hanging out with me. Have a beautiful, beautiful night.